Well, good evening, everybody. Good to see everyone. Uh, let's uh, go ahead and uh, open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for this time where we can uh, study this book and uh, spend some time together discussing these themes and topics. Uh, we ask that your spirit would be with us, giving us wisdom, giving us insight in how we can apply these things to our lives and, and to grow in our faith and, and uh, living lives that are pleasing to you. Uh, bless this time as well. It may be an encouragement to us and that we might uh, edify each other and uh, enjoy some fellowship together as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. As we come to, let's see here, letters 13 and 14 this week. Letter 13, uh, we see uh, something happening in terms of the narrative. There's a, a special work that seems to be happening in the, uh, in the patient's case. And the particular context of this, uh, this kind of renewal of grace and uh, uh, repentance in his life um, leads to a discussion uh, regarding the topic of pleasures, of real pleasures in particular. So we'll spend some time focusing on that and, and some of the things that are derived from it. And then when we get to letter 14, uh, we turn to the topic of humility. So those are some of the things that we'll be considering and discussing this evening. So as we turn to letter 13... As I mentioned already, there seems to be some kind of dramatic uh, turn of repentance that takes place in this individual's life. Now, Lewis doesn't describe really all the things that happen here. Um, he just uh, refers to it as a, uh, a repentance and renewal of what the other side call grace on the scale, uh, which you describe as the defeat of the first order. It amounts to a second conversion and probably on a deeper level than the first. So we don't have much given here, uh, and, there, and I think that part of the reason is this is being written from the, the perspective of screw tape, and there seems to be an aspect that they don't, you know, Lewis is communicating, the, the demons don't really fully know how to explain what it is that happens here. Uh, you have this description of there's like this, this asphyxiating cloud that's surrounding the patient that... Uh, you know, worm tongue is not able to, or not worm tongue. That's uh, that's Tolkien. Wormwood, <laughs> uh, wormwood is not able to, you know, to to permeate it. You know, he's not able to get through it. And you you have this scene of the patient kind of having a moment with God, where God's ministering to him, working in his heart in a certain way, and he's completely and totally isolated uh, and protected from the the temptations or uh, any actions of uh, Satan and his demons. And, uh, and so I think that's probably an aspect of why Lewis doesn't talk about it much is because, well, screw tape just doesn't know how to talk about it. Um, there's something, uh, something happening there that's, um, that's beyond their ability. Or he uses the language of, you know, not yet fully classified, uh, the modes that God uses here. He even refers to, you know, some humans are permanently surrounded by it and therefore inaccessible to us. And I think part of what uh, Lewis is referencing here with these ideas is um, the fact that God does protect and care for his people. Um, while we do go through periods of temptation, while we do um, experience spiritual warfare, especially as Calvinists, it's important for us to remember we do believe in the perseverance of the saints, which is some like to refer to as the preservation of the saints. God protects and he cares for his people even spiritually. Uh, the work that he has begun in us, he will finish it and complete it in the end. It doesn't mean we don't have sins. It doesn't mean we don't go through low periods spiritually in our lives. But as in the case of this patient, 
He's going through a period where Satan seems to be winning a little bit. He's going through some periods where he's, he's falling into some bad company. He's got some bad practices and habits that are being developed. He's, you know, kind of leveling out in terms of he had that spiritual high and now he's kind of coming down off it. It kind of looks from a worldly perspective or from a human perspective that maybe he's up in the air. Maybe Satan will win in the end. Of course, God cannot lose any of his children out of his hand. And so I think we see an example of this, though Lewis is not a Calvinist. I think we can still uh, drive some of those ideas here that God protects and cares for his children. And that's what's being pictured here, this, this event that takes place in the, in the patient's life. <clears throat> yes, the, the asphyxiating cloud. <laughs> uh, the, the demons cannot uh, abide in its presence. It, it chokes them. And I guess that yeah. I mean, the, the imagery that Lewis is uh, using there fits with a lot of the imagery we have in the, the scriptures of God's presence being described as a cloud. Um, you have it with Israel in the wilderness. You have it um, uh, in Exodus, uh, some of the prophetic literature as well as like Ezekiel, other things. Um, but yeah, you know, the, the spirit is ministering to him in this moment while the patient's walking. And um, in that moment, God's not going to let anyone come near him. And that's a, that should be an encouragement to us that um, no matter what struggles we go through as God's children, God will take care of us. He'll provide for us. He will defend us and protect us spiritually. As Christians, we may sin. We may fall. We may go through dark, difficult, and low times, but God will bring us through it. It's an important thing for us to, to remember. Now, the, uh, the chapter goes on to talk about, um, Screwtape turns to uh, describing, well, how did this, what, what were the, um, the events that led up to this? What were the, the, the mistakes that uh, Wormwood made that uh, led up to this point of this moment that the patient had uh, with God? And the particular occasion for all this happening was his enjoying of real pleasures. And... Uh, it's important for us to, to recognize uh, when we talk, when we think about pleasure, uh, often it can have a bad connotation. It can, you know, can have that connotation of uh, things that are worldly that we're not supposed to enjoy and, and you know, stuff like that. But I think we've talked uh, previously in the past about how pleasures can be a, a positive thing. God uh, made us to be able to enjoy things. Um, you know, when God created the world, he created it good, good, very good. And uh, there are things that human beings are supposed to be able to enjoy. And Lewis, uh, Lewis uses this language here of pains and pleasures. Um, part of the significance of them is that they are unmistakably real. Uh, and as far as they go, they give the, the person who feels them a touchstone of reality. Now, there's a, a lot of things that... Um, we can kind of feel in a kind of hazy way emotionally connected with pain or connected with pleasure that are, are, that are kind of superficial. But there is a such thing as, you know, a real pain and a real pleasure that uh, connects with reality and uh, can force a person or provide an opportunity for a person to, to kind of seek things more clearly and to recognize uh, reality in a better way. So he has a, a couple of contrasts that Screwtape makes here. Uh, he talks about, you know, there, there's two different ways that you may be trying to, you know, to lead a person towards hell. Uh, and the first way he describes is the romantic method. 
Um, or another way to, to put this, he, he describes it as, you know, being submerged in self-pity for imaginary distresses. This is a, the person that, um, not romanticized in kind of a, a lovey-dovey type way, but romanticizing in the sense of, of uh, a lot of uh, emotional um, things being made up in the mind almost. And so this idea of self-pity for imaginary distresses, you know, this is the, uh, the person um, you might think of if, you, if you're familiar with Pride and Prejudice, um, the mother of the story who's constantly has all these ailments that she's describing all the time that, um, and has all this self-pity that she's, she, she has for herself and she's trying to engender in other people. And she has all these imaginary distresses and she's always talking about, you know, just how, you know, and how a pitiable state that she's in. Um, you know, people can be like this sometimes. Sometimes we can uh, imagine our lives as having all these other issues and things going on and we just kind of live life in that, that self-pity state, but they aren't actually real distresses. And uh, screw tape talks here that, well, what you don't want to happen then, if you're, if you're trying to lead this person into living this kind of life and thinking this way and all this stuff, well, what you don't want to happen is for them to then have real genuine pain, such as a, like a toothache. Because then all of a sudden, the real pain of the toothache, in comparison with all this fake pain that they've kind of you know, conjured up in their minds, they're all of a sudden, they realize all the stuff that they've been talking about isn't actually real. And it, uh, when you compare the inauthentic with the authentic, all of a sudden the inauthentic loses a lot of its, its luster. And then uh, he uses the language, it unmasks the whole stratagem. Same thing as well with someone and the issue of pleasures. Uh, in this particular instance, Wormwood has been trying to, uh, to damn the patient by the world by palming off vanity, bustle, irony, and expensive tedium as pleasures. And so the last thing you wanted here was for the, the, the patient to experience a real pleasure. Um, Wormwood's been trying to sell, you know, uh, all these different false ways of uh, experiencing what he thought was, you know, uh, good feelings, but that they actually compare uh, the pale in comparison to an actual real good thing that the person enjoys. Uh, we could probably think of, uh, of some examples, but like even in our, our culture today, there are a lot of things that are, that are sold as the, you know, this is going to give you pleasure. This is going to fulfill you. This is going to make you um, happy, satisfied, all these things. But no one's ever happy or satisfied with any of those things. And in fact, those things are, when you actually compare them to something that's real and lasting, it just pales in comparison. You know, the idea of, uh, the idea of like sleeping around with the idea of a, a loving, uh, committed marriage. You know, the one seems to give pleasure, right? It, it seems to give something that, uh, that feels good. But in the end, it doesn't compare at all with the, the lasting uh, or the, uh, the real pleasure that one can enjoy uh, in the relationship the way that God has created it and designed it. And so that's the idea that uh, Lewis is trying to communicate here, this contrast between like these, you know, imaginary pains versus a real pain, imaginary pleasures versus real pleasures, and that real pain and real pleasures do connect us uh, with reality. Um, this then leads to a, a conversation about uh, um, the personality of the individual. 
he goes on to talk about, you know, when God talks of their losing themselves, he only means abandoning the clamor of self-will. Once they have done that, he really gives them back all their personality. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, he really gives them back all their personality. What this means is, Lewis is again trying to get at this idea that real pleasures aren't a bad thing. They're a good thing that God has given us. And when we're called to die, our, to, our, die to ourselves, to give ourselves wholly to God, uh, what that's talking about is talking about the giving of our wills, the willingness to, to sacrifice everything, to give up everything, to follow after God. But God doesn't then, uh, you know, when we give ourselves completely to him, he doesn't then put us in a state where it's like, okay, well, you're not able to enjoy anything anymore. But rather, God now puts us in a place where we can really, truly, and properly enjoy the world that he has given us. Uh, perhaps another way to put it is that uh, you have this idea of God sanctifying our personalities so that we can utilize them best for his glory afterwards. Um, God sanctifies us after we give ourselves to him and enables us to really and truly enjoy uh, the world the way that it is meant to be enjoyed. Not perfectly because we're still sinners, because this world has fallen and all those kinds of things. Um, but there are still real and good uh, joys that we can have. And so Screwtape's desire is to destroy the person by not letting them enjoy anything other than sin. He talks about this. It is, uh, it is always desirable to substitute the standards of the world or convention or fashion for a human's own real likings and dislikings. I would make it a rule to eradicate from my patient any strong personal taste which is not actually sin. Even if it is something quite trivial, such as fondness for country cricket or collecting stamps or drinking cocoa. Such things, I grant you, have nothing of virtue in them, but there's, there's a sort of innocence and humility and self-forgetfulness about them which I distrust. The man who truly and disinterestedly enjoys any one thing in the world for its own sake and without caring two pence what other people say about it is by that very fact forearmed against some of your subtlest modes of attack. What's he getting at here? He wants the patient to, be to not actually be able to enjoy anything just for the sake of enjoying it, unless it's sin. But he wants them to be, to be constantly concerned about all the other reasons for why he should do something. Because it's what the world says he's supposed to enjoy. Because it's convention. Because it's fashion. Because, you know, this, that, or the other thing. And I think a, a helpful comparison for us to, uh, to see how this uh, plays itself out in our culture today is think about the shifts that have happened with the digital age. Everyone has a phone. Everyone has a camera. How often is it, use an example of a baseball game. Nowadays, the final pitch of the World Series, when you watch it on video replay, you see flashbulbs going off around the entire stadium because everyone is trying to capture a picture of the moment rather than actually enjoying the moment themselves. Why is that? Because that's our convention today with, you know, pictures or it didn't happen, right? You've got to be able to, to show it on social media. I mean, especially among younger generations, why is social media such a big deal? Because it's constantly that focus of uh, 
your life being conformed to the conventions of the world or getting uh, um, um, approval or uh, being affirmed by the world through your social media. This isn't to say that social media is bad or things like that, but that fits into what Lewis is talking about here. We don't actually read books because we enjoy the book. We read the book because everyone else tells us we're supposed to read the book or we want to fit in or things like that. And so I think there's a, a helpful thing here that there isn't anything wrong with actually enjoying something because we actually enjoy it. It's okay to be a little weird and idiosyncratic and be the person that God made you to be and enjoying the things that he created you to enjoy. Now, with those guardrails of it's not being sin and, and not getting uh, so engrossed in it that, you know, I mean, that you can take that in wrong ways, but does that make sense to what, uh, what I'm trying to communicate here with what Lewis is talking about? Yes, Terry. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, it's getting it in the right order. If we become all consumed with the gifts, that's reversing the order instead of having the orientation of God first and then enjoying the things that he has given us. Um, yeah, that's, a, that's exactly right. Um, one last thing he talks about in this letter, uh, just to mention again, we've talked a bit about this in other places, but he brings it up, is that, okay, yeah, so this patient has had this, this great turnaround where he, he recognizes some issues he's been having, he's repenting of things, things like that. The big deal that Screwtape wants to impress is this is what you can't allow happen here. The great thing is to prevent his doing anything. As long as he does not convert it into action, it does not matter how much he thinks about his new repentance. No amount of piety in his imagination and affections will harm us if he can keep it out of his will. This is the idea, okay, he's had a great kind of uh, repentant experience where he recognizes he's been hanging with the wrong crowd, he's been doing some of the wrong things. That's fine. Just let it stay as an emotion and don't actually let it affect what he then does in his life. And this is something we've talked about before, but uh, just because someone feels something or says something if it doesn't actually lead to changed actions, it's not really affecting anything. It's not really uh, an actual change that's taken place. A lot of people can say things. A lot of people can feel things. Um, but it then also must, res uh, uh, must follow into a changed life. All right, so that's, that's letter 13. Are there any questions or, or comments about anything we've talked about so far? Yeah, John. Letter 13, I think. Yeah, uh, the last sentence of the letter is, the more often he feels without acting, the less he will be able ever to act. And in the long run, the less he'll be able to feel. Those th these, these things feed, them, feed each other. Um, if you feel things but you don't act on them, that's going to damage your ability to act in the future, which in the end is going to come back around and damage your ability to feel things. Does that make sense?
Okay. Yes, Barbara. Mm -hmm. That you can enjoy doing something that's totally work. Yeah. 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 Yeah, absolutely. No, uh, in letter 14, I, uh, I'll share a little bit about there's a, a section in here where it's like, oh, yeah, I've totally experienced that. Um, for those on Zoom, Barbara was just sharing about how she was uh, reading this letter earlier today. And um, uh, before she went, she was outside, before she went back uh, inside, um, realized the pool needed skimming and she enjoys doing that. And she went and did it and enjoyed it and felt a real pleasure with that, which, of course, was something that screw tape would not want her to do. Uh, and there's an aspect too that uh, um, in taking care of the pool, I mean, you're you're taking care of the gifts that God has given you. I mean, there, there's a lot of real good things there that it is proper to enjoy that. Um, I mean, that doesn't mean everything we do is easy uh, or things like that, but yeah, no, that's a great example. Yeah, being outside. Yep. Yeah. It is, absolutely. God's creation is, is amazing. All right, any other thoughts or comments before we look at letter 14? Okay. So in letter 14, he begins by uh, talking about another alarming thing that's now happening with the patient. Uh, and that's that he's not, uh, he is no longer making those confident resolutions which marked his original conversion. Uh, but instead, he now is in this state where he's, he only has this hope for the daily and hourly pittance to meet the daily and hourly temptation. This is very bad. Um, what he's talking about here is that, you know, very, I mean, it, here it's, he's talking about it when the person's originally converted, but it applies to more than just that. And that's the practice we have sometimes of, um, you know, you have a, a struggle with sin that's going on, and you're like, you know, you, you make that great resolution, that great commitment. I'm never going to do that again. I'm never going to say that again. I'm never going to, you know, whatever it is again. And you know, 30 minutes later, you, you do that very thing. <laughs> I mean, I, I remember doing this as a kid. I am not going to sin anymore. And then what's, you know, what's the next thing you do? Well, you sit. Um, and I mean, and that's very common. And, you know, it's, you know, we have this desire to make these great leaps and bounds and just kind of you know, reach perfection, and that's not what happens in the Christian life. And there's a, a sense of maturing that can happen where we, we move past the, you know, these, these great grand gestures that don't actually affect anything, and we reach this point of just this, this regular, small, but just dependence on God in the fight against sin. He, just, he describes this as this hope for the daily and hourly pittance to meet the daily and hourly temptation. Just the, you know, that little bit that we need 
when we need it, that God gives us to sustain us and to help us to grow and fight against uh, temptation. Sanctification is not accomplished by big, grand gestures. Uh, It's not always accomplished by these big, great leaps and bounds, but it's the slow and steady consistency. Uh, Yes, there are downs, but ever progressing upwards, uh, day in, day out, throughout the Christian life. And and this is not flashy. Um, The world wants a flashy Christianity, but Christianity is not flashy. It's a a day-in, day-out commitment, struggle, carrying our cross, pilgrimage, um, towards the uh, towards our life with Christ, and uh, and that's what he's describing here at the uh, at the outset. Uh, but then he goes on uh, to talk about uh, what's really happening here is the patients become humble. He's realized that he can't, you know, make these grand promises to God and keep them. He can't just fix fix himself. He can't just resolve. Oh, I'm not going to do this anymore. But he's reached this state of humility that I need God's daily grace, even hourly grace, to meet those temptations that he's facing. So the patient has now become humble. And so, well, what do you do with a guy who's now become humble? Well, the first thing you do is you try to make him proud about the fact that he's humble. I mean, that's what, that's what he says here. Your patient has become humble. Have you drawn his attention to the fact? Um. Catch him at the moment when he is really poor in spirit and smuggle into his mind the gratifying reflection, by Jove, I'm being humble. And almost immediately, pride, pride at his own humility will appear. If he awakes to the danger and tries to smother this new form of pride, make him proud of his attempt and so on, through as many stages as you please. I mean, I've, I've experienced this before. I'm sure some of you have uh, as well of, you know, you're, you're dealing with something, you're like, oh, man, I'm responding to this you really well or whatever. I'm being humble. And next thing you know, it's like, oh, man, I just was proud. Well, look, look how good I am. I recognize that I'm sitting here by being proud and you know, things like that. Very, very subtle things that can, can happen to us. Um, <laughs> he does say this, though, but don't try this too long for fear you awake his sense of humor and proportion, in which case he'll merely laugh at you and go to bed. Um, you know, when he, uh, hopefully... Uh, when we see these temptations happen, we can we can reach the point of like this is just ridiculous, and uh, uh, that was one of Luther's great um, uh, great means of responding to Satan was to laugh at him because uh, he tries to lead us astray in such ridiculous ways sometimes. But that's the uh, as the patients becoming humble, that's what screw tape you know try to work against that, try to get him to become proud in his humility. Or there can be other ways of addressing this. And this starts into um, try to distract or, or turn the patient aside in terms of what humility actually is so as to um, uh, defeat his humility. In talking about humility, one of the things that we can often fall into, and this is what screw tape is trying to push for here, is we can think of humility as being a almost like a, uh, a harsh self-criticism where we just think of ourselves in the lowest, meanest terms possible. And Lewis brings out the point, that's not what humility is about. Humility is about a self-forgetfulness. 
It's about not taking ourselves too seriously, about not thinking of ourselves too highly. It's about, uh, you know, a forgetting of ourselves. But it's not about us viewing ourselves as meanly or as lowly as possible. And in fact, he goes on to, to talk about uh, this issue of uh, recognizing uh, talents or good things in our lives. Uh, he uses this example. The enemy wants to bring the man to a state of mind in which he could design the best cathedral in the world and know it to be, to be the best and rejoice in the fact without being any more or less or otherwise glad at having done it than he would be if it had been done by another. Notice that this, you know, this example is it's not that the guy, you know, you've got this guy who's very talented. He's great at architecture. He constructs this great cathedral. It's an amazing thing. Humility is not the guy saying, oh, this sucks. You know, this is terrible building. That's not humility. The humility is, it's not about him in the end. He would be just as happy with this cathedral if it was built by his neighbor, and he would have rejoiced in that great accomplishment of his neighbor as he does with the fact that he was the one who did it in the end. And this gets at the idea of, uh, you know, he uses this language about loving our neighbors as ourselves. When they have really learned to love their neighbors as themselves, they will be allowed to love themselves as their neighbors. Think about that. When we are called to love our neighbors as ourselves, that doesn't mean we stop loving ourselves. Because if we stop loving ourselves, that means we stop loving our neighbors altogether. But it's to have the same love for our neighbor as we have for ourselves. And in fact, uh, one of the things that first kind of uh, caught my attention about just this, this issue in general was actually uh, doing a, a study on the larger catechism on the ninth commandment, where our catechism talks about you can bear, bear false witness about yourself by thinking about yourself too lowly. I mean, think about it this way. If God has given us gifts, if God has been doing work in us, you know, in all these things, it's actually a bearing of false witness to deny the gift that God has given us. Uh, there's a, a time in seminary where uh, one of our professors asked, uh, uh, asked the class, there's like maybe a dozen of us in there. He said, how many of you, by show of hands, would uh, describe yourselves as mature Christians? And we all kind of s- uh, sat there, and uh, I think there may have been one or two that kind of half raised their hands. It's like, we, we had no idea how to respond. And, uh, and he And he followed up by saying, you know, well, many of you probably are trying to be humble in in the sense of not speaking more highly of yourself than you should. But there's also an aspect, you're all training for ministry. And we are called to be mature Christians. You should be mature Christians. And you should be able to recognize that about yourself, not in the sense of, of pride, but in the sense of recognition of what God has been doing and the work he's been doing in you. And so I think it's a, important for us, this is a, what Lewis is trying to get here is this distinction about what humility is really about. It's about this self-forgetfulness of not thinking of ourselves um, too much, really. Uh, self-abasement is not the solution. Though. Um, he goes on to say, this is a, a, um, the last paragraph, the beginning of the, the last paragraph of the letter. 
His whole effort, therefore, will be to get the man's mind off the subject of his own value altogether. He would rather the man thought himself a great architect or a great poet and then forgot about it than that he should spend much time and pains trying to think himself a bad one. There's nothing wrong with recognizing the gifts God has given us. As long as we forget about it afterwards and don't go around tooting our own horn. But to spend all of our time trying to deny the gifts that God has given us is actually will be counterproductive in the end. Then goes on to talk about, uh, it's important for us to remember as well, and this is, this is part of humility and, and recognition of gifts. And part of the reason self-forgetfulness is so important. Where is it that our talents and gifts come from? They come from God. There are things that have been given to us by God. And humility recognizes the gift. And instead of looking at the self and says, well, how great am I? It gives the credit back to God in thanksgiving for what God has given us. He talks about the enemy will also try to render real in the patient's mind a doctrine which they all, they all profess but find it difficult to bring home to their feelings, the doctrine that they did not create themselves, that their talents were given them, and that they might as well be proud of the color of their hair. Of their, of their hair. But always and by all methods, the enemy's aim will, will be to get the patient's mind off such questions, and yours will be to fix it on them. That's what Screwtape's going to try to do, to get, us to, to get us to either fall into that trap of pride of thinking about ourselves all the time and things like that, or get us to constantly be thinking about ourselves in in um, self-abasing uh, ways. Well, God doesn't want us to focus on those things. Recognize the gifts, give praise to him for them, look up to him instead of down at ourselves. But humility is about that self-forgetfulness in the end. All right. Any questions or comments from anything in letters 13 and 14? Anything we've talked about? That's all I've got for this evening, so. Uh, which pass? Yes. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, first, uh, first Corinthians talking about boasting about gifts. Yeah, it's, it's meaningless in the end because it all comes from God. And, uh, and we, we need to give glory to God for our gifts. Because I, I mean, I do think, I think this is important because I've done this and I've seen a lot of people do this. You know, we think humility is just criticizing ourselves as much as possible. And it's like, wait a second, we're missing an opportunity to give glory to God when we are unwilling to recognize the gifts that he's given us, whatever those may be. So, yeah, Jeff. The way that uh, the screw put it is that, uh, that, he's trying, that, that the enemy is trying to get the person to love his neighbor as himself, and then he gets to the point where he loves his neighbor, then he can love himself as his neighbor. Where a lot in today's culture, in modern-day uh, churches, they do just the opposite. You're actually taught that you have to love yourself first, because the whole focus is on self. Right. You love yourself first. Then, you know, how can you love your neighbor if you don't love yourself? And, and that's actually where they've, they've taken the whole concept and twisted it back. 
Yeah, uh, for those on Zoom, Jeff's just uh, bringing out about how um, our culture gets backwards, the whole idea of loving our neighbors that we may uh, learn to love our, um, we will be allowed to love our, uh, sorry, I'm messing it all up. <laughs> what Lewis is saying is that as we learn to love our neighbors, that's what enables us to actually truly be able to love ourselves. Our culture will put it the other way around. It's all about loving yourself. And then loving your neighbor becomes a, an extension of that. Um, yeah, thank you. Any other questions or comments? All right.